You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 63. This show's topic, teachers are on the front line. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And Sandy, I'm always reminded as we have these conversations on every episode, how many different types of roles, people, careers, professions that are really touched by this issue. Um, and many that may not even realize how they are touched by this mm-hmm. issue. And one of those, uh, one of those uh, constituencies we've talked about before on the show are teachers. Yes. And we've talked about teachers in the realm of internet safety back on episode number 35. So that's a great resource if you're an educator yourself or if you are closely connected with educators. But that isn't the full story, unfortunately, Sandy. And so we're going to spend some more time today looking at teachers and how they're on the front lines and looking at some of the statistics and some of the uh, some of the research and uh, and really educate ourselves further on this so we can learn more and be an advocate. Absolutely. And, you know, I think I might have mentioned uh, a few episodes ago that in Virginia, the state, Virginia, um, they passed a law that requires public school teachers to have two hours of training on commercial sexual exploitation of yes, children. you did C-Sec. mention that. Yes, and yeah. I would love for California to pass that law. I would love for every state um, to pass that law. I'd love countries to pass that law because I truly believe teachers are uniquely positioned to be at the front line to prevent um, and to intervene early with at-risk kids that might be come vulnerable to being exploited by traffickers. So I want to ask you some more about that because I think there are some obvious things that come into my mind that would be be clear paths for that. And I also think there's probably some things that are maybe not so obvious. But before we go there, let's maybe look at some of the statistics. I know you've pulled some statistics here today that would be really valuable for us to look at and frame some context for this. Well, looking here in Orange County is a good case study. And because we're we're about three and a half million people, uh, pretty diverse. Um, we have some um, some really high end affluent communities, and we have some really low end um, communities that really it's borderline poverty. And so, what are the um, statistics in Orange County with regard to kids being commercially sexually exploited, which is what we generally find when we're looking at um, child trafficking in Orange County. Now, having said that, don't forget, back in um, 2002, a 12-year-old, Shima, was rescued as a child maid, a child slave that was um, living in a $1.6 million home and taking care of a family with five children. And Mm -hmm. she slept in the garage, and she worked seven days a week from early in the morning until late at night. So labor trafficking does happen with children. But when we're looking at child trafficking that we're seeing the most right now, it is domestic. It is our own children who have been trafficked. So those statistics sound like this. 
In Orange County's latest report, 43% of U.S. sex trafficking victims were minors mm. between uh, under the age of 18. 63% were minors when they were first commercially sexually exploited. So now we're not talking about we've rescued minors. We're talking about adults who have been rescued from commercial sexual exploitation. And when we get their background, we find out they were 12, 13, 14 years old when they were recruited and conditioned and groomed for this life. And now then when we're rescuing children, like remember we just did the report on the 105 kids that were rescued out of innocence loss. What about all the adult women that were in those same brothels? What was their story? And according to the Orange County report, 63% of them were being uh, were minors when they first began this. And this brings up the topic, Sandy. We've had this conversation before, but it's worth mentioning again on why we don't use the term prostitution or prostituted to describe this exactly. situation. And so could you say something about that? Because I think that that's a really key point for us to remember. Well, the federal um, description... Uh, under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, they use the phrase commercial sexual exploitation of children, CSEC. And that's what the law, the language of the law is. And I know it's difficult to say that, but you're college educated. I'm pretty sure you can handle that. I've I've watched um, our, our community learn to use that vocabulary And I recently, just a few days ago, had a conversation with a survivor who really preferred that because even when you used the term prostituted, which takes this and makes it um, something that's happening to someone in somehow there's a sense that it takes away the idea that this is a choice because it's um, turned into a different verb form, Mm -hmm. but it's still it's not completely away from that. And when we use commercial, we know that someone's doing this for a profit. And when we use the term sexually exploited, that describes the experience of that young person, of that woman, of that little girl, that little boy, commercially sexually exploited. And that is the experience that we describe. And whenever we use a form of the word prostitute, there is this Um, baggage that goes with that. And the idea that there is some sort of um, personal agency where you can agree to do this. And what happens to someone when they turn 18 that's been commercially sexually exploited since the time they were 15? On their birthday, do they suddenly have agency to decide to continue to do this? Or are they conditioned to this? It's very messy. So Very messy, yeah. Rather than trying to decide, is this person doing this in and of themselves, of their own free will, I'm just going to call them all commercially sexually exploited because someone is making a profit and that is exploitation. So that's the direction um, that we'll go with as we look at this report. Great. Good to know. Thank you. 63% were minors when they first began being commercially sexually exploited. 48% of these U.S. trafficking victims for sex trafficking were known to be sexually abused. So they they were trying to escape some other kind of abuse. 52% were living on the streets. 
58% had run away from home. And here is the startling statistic that if you're listening to this, stop and write it down. This is important. 71% recruited by someone they knew. A boyfriend, a friend, a family member. That's pretty scary stuff. It's very scary stuff. And Sandy, you and I were talking even before we started airing about how it's very common when you look at the rape statistics mm. and that crime, how many women, certainly the random attacks do happen, but the vast majority of those crimes are committed by people the woman knows and or the man in some cases. And you're saying that this is there's some similarities here in that that first point of contact is often someone that the victim knows and perhaps even to some extent trusts. Yeah, exactly. It may be a friend from school or something that says, I know somebody who can help you get a job. Come with me. And then the rest of it is you've heard these stories over and over again. And these statistics are on a handout that the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force made available at their display at the Orange County Fair. And I'm really... Which is a big event here in Orange County. Yeah, it is big. People come from a lot of other counties to go to our fair. And um, for the second year in a row, the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force display has received first place. All right. In their category. Go task force. Yes. So some of you listening to this may have already heard these statistics. You may have already read um, about where they think schools should know more about what human trafficking is and who might be at risk in our own classrooms. So let's look at a little bit. I mean, we've talked about um, minors who are being commercially sexually exploited. And we understand that with the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, we don't have to prove force, fraud, or coercion if the person being sexually exploited is under the age of 18. But what do we do to stop that? How do we do early intervention or um, prevention, identification? Why are we, why do we keep seeing this and how can it happen right under our noses? So this is where the teachers come in. Yes, yes. Now, most of you know that um, I'm a nurse, and when I first came to Orange County, I started talking to school nurses. And I did a lot of um, presentations and trainings for school nurses. It did not occur to me at that time to include the teachers. And then I talked to a principal who mentioned that she had faculty that also wanted to know this information. So we did a little bit of a training. That was the first time. Now I'm convinced when you look at a teacher's role in a child's life, first of all, even if the kid comes from a home where mom and dad are there first thing in the morning and last thing at night, and there's no neglect, no challenges, no single parent struggles going on, even with that, the teacher has an average of six hours a day with that child. Um, most parents don't have six hours a day in front of their kids. It's true. So the teachers have a lot of influence in the things that they talk about, the things they teach. I, I think that the teachers can begin to talk about slavery and help kids learn to identify, um, exploitation for labor 
uh, in products that are on our shelves. We talk about fair trade products, fair trade chocolate, those kinds of things, but also about how people take advantage and um, commercially exploit a child's sexuality through taking pictures, through pornography, and, and then through grooming and then selling them maybe online or on, on a street um, situation. So how do teachers then uh, become equipped to engage and be proactive about prevention and early intervention? So I think that's the big question is how is that done? And and this is something, Sandy, I don't I know very little about as far as what's currently being done and what may potentially be done in the future. So how does that work? If I'm a well, teacher in Orange County, do I get any kind of training on on recognizing if one of my students might be a, a trafficking risk? What how you know, I- we've just started making this kind of information more um, reachable for teachers. And a couple of years ago, we had um, our then chair of the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force, um, Derek Marsh, um, speak to all the principals in the Santa Ana um, school district. and But we've, we haven't been as methodical as the state of Virginia, where every teacher is required to have two hours of CSEC training. Yeah. And I want to see that happen in California, because what we do know is that the recruiting takes place in middle schools and high schools. We do know from school psychologists that we've interviewed and we've talked about here before, that pimps recruit as kids are walking home from school. And they look for vulnerable kids. They know how to identify the kid that feels left out, doesn't have any friends, um, isn't dressed like the rest of them, and offers to be their friend, offers to buy them things, give them things, those kinds of things. And so for teachers to be more vigilant, to be more aware of those kinds of signs and risk factors are really important. Mm. The, um, The whole issue of access to social networking sites and the rapidly changing technological communication, media influence, these are all things that the teachers have more input in that six hours at school than the parents do in during breakfast time and after they get home, have dinner and do homework and go to bed. So where are teachers in monitoring the social networking? That's why we did episode 35 to help teachers find a way to integrate um, internet safety into their everyday lesson plans. And we provided lesson plans that are authorized and you you can look at the charts so that they fit for health, technology, and language arts here in California. So teachers, if you're scrambling, just come to our website and, and find the, well, we've got the link in the show notes for you to be Episode able to do that. Episode 35 was Episode that show 35. Yeah. And then we want to talk to teachers about the warning signs. How would they know that someone's at risk? And of course, you might already have some idea about their living situation. You may know that um, they've just had a big change because now um, there's been a divorce or something and it's a single parent family or their housing, um, changed because of job 
loss. And now they're not living where they were before. They've been displaced. They aren't in the same community. This child doesn't have the same friends and support network that they had before. All of those things can be contributing factors. Sandy, that brings up a question for me. Then, you know, I think like middle school teachers are probably some of the greatest saints on earth uh, or junior (laughs) high, depending on the part of country you're in. And you know, that is such a difficult time of change for most people, uh, you know, at that age going through that. And, and teachers are really on the front lines of helping students navigate that. How are there certain things that teachers, and you might be getting this, that would, should watch for? Because there is a lot of change going on physically, socially in a student's life at that time anyway. And there are a lot of things happening. What would be the things that a teacher would see that would say, you know, this is beyond the normal you know, the quote unquote normal transitions that a student goes through in that time of their life? Well, I think one of the most um, early ways to identify this is when a child suddenly begins to um, not show up for class Mm. or they cut school early on Friday and they get there really, really late on Monday. So what's happening over the weekend? We had this situation um, Oh, probably, I don't know how many years ago now. And a teacher called because they realized that this little girl was gone um, every weekend. And as they did more conversation and dialogue, it seemed like she was going with friends. Those are air quotes there for you listeners. With friends to Las Vegas. Mm. So what was going on? Well, the teacher that was concerned was the reason that there was a red flag because um, he had identified that one of his students always missed the afternoon class on Friday and either didn't show up at all on Monday or if she did, she was very, very late. And so they began to investigate. Another, Another warning sign is when your students chronically run away from home and what's going on there? Why is that? And and when we did the the child trafficking summit in 2011, one of the things that all of the professionals in the room agreed on from four different counties was a child that has run away four times is the, at the greatest risk for commercial sexual exploitation. They're not going to um, go back. They're going to take any opportunity to be able to escape whatever it is they're running away from. Um, And traffickers are smart about those things, so they'll know how to leverage those opportunities when they see them, unfortunately. And that that teacher that I mentioned earlier, um, what sent his antenna up was the next warning sign, references to frequent travel to other cities. Well, why are they going to Las Vegas? And why did they go to San Francisco and what's going on that they're going there and um, what happens when they come back. This is, this is one of the issues there. The, some other warning signs are signs of physical abuse and trauma, maybe even um, suddenly very withdrawn or depressed or fear and distrust. Those are signs. Those are red flags. Mm. And, as we're, as we're looking at this list, you could be thinking, well, I've been depressed. Was my teacher supposed to be worried about me? Um, I think what we want to look at here is a, con- a constellation of signs. So if 
they're chronically running away from home. And there's also um, unexplained absences around a weekend, then I need to ask more questions. Mm. I need to get more information. Um, the, the situation with control over their own personal schedules is sometimes a warning sign. And um, the big warning that something new is happening is often a sudden change in what they're wearing, uh, what kind of bag they're carrying, what kind of shoes they've got, because all of a sudden they seem to have enough money for that brand name product that everybody else has, but they didn't have before. How did that oh, happen? Interesting. Where did that money come from? Who is who is providing these um, little rewards for this student? Because that's the kind of thing someone at that age would spend money on too. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But their circumstances didn't change. So how did they suddenly start wearing these name brand products? Mm. This is a big deal. Um, and then if there's uncharacteristic, promiscuous behavior or sexual references beyond what um, are more age expe- age expected norms. And I think that's kind of a hard thing for us to evaluate because media... Um, has created a culture where hypersexualization is part of everyday language with really young kids. Yeah, unfortunately. So this one is this one is something that um, again, a teacher is going to be a really valuable resource on the front line to identify an at-risk kid. Just because they're using um, very hypersexualized vocabulary does not mean that they're a sex trafficking victim. But if it's a kid that you've known since third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, and this is very suddenly happening, well, now you have cause to do a little more investigation, ask a few more questions. Sure. Um, the Another red flag, in a relationship or socializing with noticeably older people, um, Suddenly, your middle school student is being picked up by a crew from the high school, and they seem to have access to cigarettes and maybe even alcohol or even worse, drugs. And so you're starting to see some new, um, really concerning behaviors. And so you start looking at those behaviors and say, well, we've got to do something about that. But what we really want to find out is about who is introducing that. And is that being introduced as part of a grooming process? Um, Is it being introduced as part of a recruiting process? Or has the recruitment already occurred? Because lots of kids continue to show up for school when they're being um, commercially sexually exploited, which is surprising, but still very true. And Sandy... Why is that? Forgive me for asking a naive question. Is it because the traffickers make sure that that happens so it doesn't raise as many flags? Is it, is it, an, what is the reason for that? I don't, I don't think that there is any real consistent um, answer to the why question. Um, and I would prefer that they at least stay in school part time. Oh, for sure. But eventually um, the, the pattern is that they completely drop out. Hmm. And if they are being trafficked, from city to city, um, and they are no longer in a particular county, they show up someplace else, then they fall off the the child welfare um, radar when they 
it, you think that they've moved to another city and then now where where are they? And so how do we track kids when we've had traditionally um, uh, patterns of following kids based on where they're registered for school and um, or where their their homes are? And now you have a child who um, isn't going to school. It's a lot harder to stay on top of what's happening with them. Of course. Interesting. So um, we talked about expensive clothes, handbags and jewelry, technology. Um, But some of the other warning signs are not nearly as glamorous. When they start looking sleep deprived and um, even malnourished and even hungry when they get there, they've worked all weekend, they come on Monday and they're there because they want to get there in time for lunch because they're on the lunch program. Mm. Um, those kinds of issues seem, what, how could that be? But that is, that is part of the, the pattern that we see sleep deprived, especially. And with sleep deprivation, you make, you and I make poor decisions. So can you imagine being 14 years old? and being sleep deprived and malnourished. You're going to make even worse decisions than you think you've already made. Um, Another warning sign is lack of parental supervision. They don't have a healthy home environment. I think that's a given. And then lastly, affiliation with gang members or gang tattoo branding. And there is a sense that um, gangs are part of the movement, so it becomes an organized crime. I was talking to one researcher here in Southern California who indicated that um, the kinds of gang activities are trending from one type of gang. We've, we've traditionally had um, some African-American, um, Asian, and Latino gangs. So how do we how do we track that? And I think that kind of research is going to help us do a better job of finding at-risk kids and doing early intervention. The other thing I really want people to take away, and especially teachers, teachers should know what to do if they do see some of these warning signs. Because the the problem is um, they've got 32 kids maybe in their class. They can't stop and go take this kid and go and and do an investigation. So what do they do? If they feel that child is in immediate danger, they need to call 911. That's what they do right now. Otherwise, they need to call 1-888-3737-888 and give as much information as possible so that the right kind of people will be um, contacted to begin a serious investigation. It's also a good idea to talk to your local police department or to your school administrators about your concerns about a particular student. I'm convinced that students in school um, that are at risk for dropping out are really the place where teachers can do early intervention and prevent them taking a path that will lead to a lot of heartbreak and um, sad, sad, sad situations that we know all too well in these statistics that we just read. And like all of these situations, one of the things that we should all know is there is hope and there is resources that are out there, Sandy, of course. And so there are some states like Virginia that have really taken a legislate legislatively have been very proactive on this. Other states, as we know, haven't. And so let's say I'm a teacher, an educator in some capacity in a place that has not have a formalized program for 
really training and make raising awareness among educators. What's something that I could do either to um, either to train myself or potentially bring those resources to my colleagues? Well, I think one of the things is contacting um, the people in your area that lead your coalition or your task force. Um, going online to look at the training resources that are available that have been produced by, and we've talked about these many times, Homeland Security's Blue Campaign, um, Health and Human Services Rescue Restore, and the Internet Crimes Against Children website. We have a lot of materials that are available. And I think right now we're in a place where more and more training materials are going to be made available for teachers. I know right here in Orange County in November, we're going to be hosting at Vanguard a um, multi-county summit, frontline summit, in order to look at how we can do prevention and early intervention for kids um, through our child welfare programs, through CASA, through schools, the Department of Education, as well as with our juvenile probation and juvenile courts. So that'll be at Vanguard in November. Right. The sponsored by the Global Center for Women and Justice at uh, in Costa Mesa. And so if you're interested in that, check out, is there information already on the website, Sandy? Well, or sure there will be soon if there's yeah, not Yeah, what we're going to do is um, have this um, professionals come together and share their knowledge and create some kind of um, working group so that we'll begin to develop the kind of materials we need. So that's what's going to happen. And what you'll get as we um, go through this process is you'll get the benefit of um, learning more about what we identified there for teachers and CASA volunteers and so on. There's always something that we can do, and there's always so many great resources online, Sandy. We've talked about many of them, as you said, in past episodes. If you don't know where to start, though, a great place to start is with us. And so if you are not sure where to start, uh, reach out to us because we can help make that connection to get you to the right place or at least uh, help you to, to guide you to some of the resources that we have available either through past podcasts or resources online or organizations that you should talk with in your area if not here locally and so the best way to do that is well there's two ways really uh, one is to send us an email and our email address is gcwj at vanguard.edu and the gcwj stands for the global center for women and justice which sandy directs here on vanguard's campus The other way to reach us is by phone, and you can reach us by phone at 714-966-6360, and that's a great way to connect with us as well. Sandy, I really appreciate your perspective today and for helping us all to learn more about this and help to help bring more educators into this this process of ending human trafficking as well. Good, good. And just a reminder for our audience, too, another great way that you can help is to go on to iTunes. If you're an iTunes user, and leave us a review about the show. Uh, there's, there's a lot of ways that that helps. One of the big ways is the more reviews that are on iTunes, the more people who are searching for human trafficking resources on a big platform like iTunes will find the show and utilize it as a resource. So if you haven't done that, you've listened regularly, and the show's been helpful to you, take a moment to go on iTunes and leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. And we will see you again in two weeks for our next episode. All right. Thanks, Thanks, Andy. Take care.